Hello and welcome to the CRE with Coal Banker Commercial Worldwide podcast. My name is Christina Ballas, the National Director of Strategic Implementation for CBC, and I'll be your host. Today, we are joined by Greg Lindsay, keynote speaker at the 2021 NAR C5 Summit and the 2022 Coal Banker Commercial Global Conference. Greg is the Senior Fellow for Applied Research and Foresight at New Cities, a Senior Fellow of MIT's Future Urban Collectives Lab, and a non-resident Senior Fellow of the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Strategy Initiative. He's a partner at Future Map, a strategic and climate advisory firm based in Singapore, and was the inaugural urbanist in residence at Urban X BMW Mini's Urban Tech Accelerator. He is here today to talk to us about what the future can hold in the world of commercial real estate and how we can ready ourselves to address those needs. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. Okay, the first thing I want to do today is jump into a little bit of your credentials because those are amazing. But also, I really wanted to know what is a futurist and how can I become one? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of futures in my titles when you read them all out. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. A futurist, I think when most people hear that word, they think of like faith popcorn, right, from the 1980s. And they think of trend forecasters, like what colors will be in and, you know, how will the vibe shift this year? And, you know, there's a whole other tradition that goes back kind of in many ways, like the Cold War, like thinking through, like, you know, what will the Soviets do and running game playing, war games, stuff like that, Rand and all that. But, the, you know, the, for, the futurists that I know, and, you know, those of us who are, who are in the business like to call ourselves, you know, applied foresight and other more respectable titles. But a lot of what it does is, is it's a question of building scenarios to some extent, thinking through alternative futures. I think our, I think our discipline borrows that line from Dwight Eisenhower that, you know, plans are nothing, planning is everything. It's really about building that muscle in organizations to not just project straight lines forward, but start thinking and building capacity to imagine like, well, what if this happens? What if inflation is not transitory? And what if Russia invades Ukraine? And what if supply chains break in several different directions at once and what it means? Building that kind of ability to think ahead, that's a lot of what Foresight does. And, you know, I've got projects, I'm thinking right now on a project on the future of weapons of mass destruction. So that's the least cheery project. But others are thinking through like, you know, how the various uh, tech companies in Asia that have combined e-commerce and mobility, like how that plays out for us, those of us here in North America and all sorts of other ways of thinking through like, you know, uh, there's that famous William Gibson quote, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. A lot of what we're doing is constantly thinking through like, what are those various futures and, and how can they be applied? Interesting. So do you feel like in your field, you just like to give lots of different options of where the future can go? Or do you hope that some of what you come up with will kind of lead people to go in a certain direction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, always. I mean, it's the thing of the future. Like we always have a favorite future that we want to see happen. I mean, you know, there's various tools, the cone of possible futures. And you think through like what's likely, what's plausible, what's possible. But yeah, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them can be dystopian. And then there's those of us who fall prey to what's called wish casting. We're like, you, you know, what you want to happen. And then you just sort of try to like make it up about how we might get there. But yeah, a lot of it is just sort of looking at the current trends and thinking through how things get weird. That's mostly what I'm interested in. And just an example of that, I mean, going back to, to Ukraine, where, you know, the, the Ukrainian military is using drones and using it for artillery spotting. I worked with a, a friend in Foresight, Scott Smith, 11 years ago, where we thought through what would happen when like cheap drones, how they would make a difference on the battlefield. So a lot of this stuff is, is just sort of looking around at what's there and trying to figure out like what are the weird, interesting adjacencies and where that goes. And, and then, yeah, again, trying to like steer towards like what would we like to see happen and what might disrupt that? Interesting. 
So do you feel like you fall is is falling into wish casting like a, a bad thing to do in your field? I imagine that that you should try to not plan for the positives only. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you run you run the risk of like you know the what's that fa- that, that line from South Park? The underwear gnomes. You know, step one, steal underwear. Step two, question mark, and step three, profit. Like it's always the step two of wish casting that that's the danger there. You're like, well, how do we actually get from here to, here to there? So you do have to fall prey that like you know they're not trying to just simply backcast and try to get it to fit. It's, it's really more of a you know an honest process of like what's what's actually happening here and what's available and where does it go, not like let's choose the answer that we that we want yeah that we want to tell ourselves and then try to cherry pick information that will lead us back to our biases. Oh, interesting. How how revolutionary has the ability to get data into everyday life just really changed your job? Like I can't I imagine the past decade 20, 15, 20 years has really changed the way you can think about the future. Yeah, there's a ton of it, although I think that's a danger in a way, right? This is what we've we've seen since the financial crisis, right? You can build all sorts of elaborate models that use historical data, but, you know, climate is changing. We're seeing conditions change. You know, you you fall into that trap if you rely too much on data that, you know, that past results will predict future histories. And it's not always true. You know, you you can do a better and better job of simply making the data fit over time, but you can't account for that weird. You can't account for those anomalous jumps in between. And so a lot of actually the projects that I work on are still very qualitative and still very creative. That's partly what drew me to, you know, moving beyond journalism into futures. I like to joke that foresight is basically what you get to do when you stop, you know, relying on experts to put words in their mouth. You can just say it, what you're seeing, and you can build on these kinds of projects. So yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's it pushes beyond to simply like, you know, uh, building predict- predictive models based on what we think has already ha- always happened because the future is going to be obviously very different. That is so interesting. I love that. It's almost like the unpredictable model, you know, <laughs> that's almost what you built. Well, it is interesting. I mean, so, I mean, one of the models we are trying to build that's, that's, that's quantitative is, um, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, future map, you know, we built a tool called climate alpha. So we're, it's, it's our stab at the, the fast growing space of what's called climate risk advisory. So all the big reinsurance companies, Moody's and others have been buying up these software firms, trying to predict your climate risk. And obviously with the new rules from the SEC that have been proposed, like ESG is about to get supercharged, but understand your climate risk. But what we're, what we're interested in is not like understanding historical risks in your portfolio, whether that's properties or holdings or financial assets. What we're interested in is where are the opportunities? And so we're trying to build models that imagine not to give away too much of the game here, but like a Great Lakes that is reinvigorated, that is warming again, that, you know, a region of the United States that people have been leaving for 50 years, predicting its renaissance. That's not something that any current model can show you. And it's something that we're trying to build, thinking about the combination of demographics and climate and economics and trying to figure out, like, how do we tell a plausible story where the Great Lakes is vibrant again? And so, you know, that that's sort of the things where, like, we are trying to combine the quantitative and qualitative to get people into a totally new mindset to focus on opportunity and not just risk, which is where, like, that's what happens. You get big data predictive models. You end up on risk. How do I minimize? How do I minimize that something will change? We're all about the change. We're all about, like, where's the biggest possible change and how can you get on that opportunity early? And I think that's the kind of tools that we need. So thinking about change and opportunity, I'm going to bring us back into commercial real estate. So we were lucky enough to have you um, join us for our global conference, and you did a really wonderful job talking about so many possibilities and just had everybody's mind buzzing. So I'll ask you for our podcast listeners, what do you see as a great opportunity in the commercial real estate space? Oh, man, where to start? Well, I mean, I, I mean. 
Yeah, I mean, big question. On, it is the big question. Let's focus because the U.S. Census just put out data on this that sort of like shows we already knew that a lot of people moved from the big coastal metros, New York and San Francisco, and you know, dispersed. And people, you know, again, moving into suburbia in the large, you know, Sunbelt metros like Dallas and Houston or Austin, where we just were, obviously, for the conference. I mean, Austin is very much like the leading edge case of the United States, and really fascinating because Austin has, you know towers of tech offices going up downtown across the river from where we were, but then, you know, huge sprawl at the edges and, and investment properties and single family rentals going up because it's, you know, the sort of turbocharged region. And so, you know, I mean, to me, the opportunities in, in commercial are, are the fact of like, we're seeing, and we, and we have been seeing millennials who are now entering middle age are trying to like basically keep the parts of their urban youth that they really liked, but also have cheaper housing because so they can afford it and have, you know, have, have try to have it all basically. And so I think the, the biggest opportunity is thinking through like, what is these kinds of new mixed use projects that have a bit of urbanism that are happening in the sort of high growing areas. And so as an example that I think I talked about this in, in, in Austin with us, you know, I'm looking at there's interesting projects going up in McKinney and Frisco, Texas, right? Like some of the fastest growing communities in America on the, on the sort of 30 mile out suburbs of Dallas, Fort Worth. And, you know, there you see like savvy developers like you know, Craig Hall, who built the Dallas Arts District, is now converting his old 90s office park into this mix, you know, mixed use, walkable, millennial uh, bohemia. And you see things like, you know, I, I talked about one called um, Hub 121, where there, instead of, you know, putting in offices, they're putting in, you know, uh, <laughs> restaurants and bars, indoor, outdoors, so that families can hang out, and then putting flex office space around it. So I, I love the fact that like work is becoming this optional thing you do when you're not socializing with friends and family. So, so it's, to me, it's thinking through like the, the implications of these lifestyle shifts in the pandemic and thinking through the fact that like, yes, because of an overall housing shortage in the United States, people left these expensive metros the moment their, their reins on the office were loosened. And now it's a question of like, what do we want to build for them? Like, what does the future look like for those people when it comes to, you know, convenience, but also sociability and yeah, and provide the kind of communities that they want for their children. So interesting. I, I I fall into the stereotype of elder millennial and wanting to have my space kind of reflect my 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 youthful endeavors, you know. And so, you know, I live in a town with a main street and like we're always trying to like inspire people to offer more different things. And I think that's definitely a trend. Uh, yeah. When people it's funny when people say something about millennials, I'm like, you do realize we're middle aged now. <laughs> we're actually the homeowners. Gosh, I wonder if any of that has to do with this is and I don't I don't know if this is something you've thought of, but I think there was such a big a big push for the millennial generation, just as far as like higher education and colleges and that sort of thing of like finding an experience that suits your personality or your whatever. And I feel like that's always something that at least my peers are always trying to chase in their adult life is like this way of like we had this opportunity before the economy crashed and, you know, it was like, be whatever you want, go to whatever college you want, like live your dreams. And now we're like, we went through so many things and between the economy and the pandemic and, you know, and now we're all in these suburbs and it's like, well, how do we get what we loved when we were younger? Well, you know, I mean, the millennials got a bad rap. I wrote a whole report that I started before the pandemic and then published in the middle of it called the millennial dilemma. And it was really the question of like, what are the millennials supposed to do? Like they're in this straitjacket of, of all these material constraints. It really started, yeah, when they were in, in, in college, you know, rising, rising student debt as the millennial leading edge of millennials is going through college. Then, of course, you know, multiple housing bubbles as they're getting their first apartments and then eventually buying homes, the financial crisis in between. I mean, like at every step, like they've seen 
what was ultra affordable to the boomers and even a lesser extent. I mean, I'm, I'm, I consider myself like the last of the Xers. Like maybe I'm <laughs> the most geriatric millennial. It's hard to say, but you know, I, I just barely managed to stay a step ahead of this. And, and that's why in my report, you know, I mean, I, maybe it was a bit of wish casting, but you know, I, I projected some of my personal politics on it. And like, you know, I argued, you know, that perhaps we, you know, the United States should forgive student debt. And this is a controversial position endorsed by the National Association of Realtors, right? That the millennials will buy homes if you give them that money back. So, you know, yeah, I believe the United States government should give a $2 trillion stimulus so that millennials can go buy houses. Great. Because if they don't, and this is one of the trends we talked about, like the rise of single family rentals, like, you know, single family homes are becoming a form of commercial real estate with entities backed by Blackstone and various others who are realizing like, oh, like, well, you know, because of the way that the technology and others are enabling them to manage these big portfolios, you know, yeah, they're swooping in to offer like, you know, middle-aged millennials will now be renters just like they were in their 20s because they never got to, you know, capture some of that home appreciation. So there, there's a really, it's a really interesting time in the United States and Canada, to say the least here, because I'm here in Montreal where like the housing bubble never stopped and it's sort of even worse trends there. But it is a question of like, you know, what what does, what, what are we going to give this generation and how are they going to age into this and how are they, you know, they, they still have historical levels of wealth that, that caught up massively during the pandemic when we all stayed home and did nothing but work and save. But they're still less than the boomers and the Xers. So it, it'll be interesting to see like how, how this manifests for them. Absolutely. Thinking about the idea of mixed use, too. Uh, I mean, do you think that that's probably the biggest opportunity in the commercial real estate space is like just thinking about the use case of the properties and really mixing that up? Is that is that maybe the biggest change we might see? Well, that's one of them. I mean, the biggest change overall, and this is like, you know, the 10 year trend of so-called software eating the world, right? It's like everything has become a service and like, and not just, you know, yeah, I mean, housing is a service in the form of single family rentals, but everything has become a service. You know, I, I talked a lot in, in, in Austin about dark stores and one of my particular fascinations at the moment, because I think it's evolving so incredibly rapidly. I mean, Instacart, for example, literally yesterday, uh, as we we're taping this, announced that they're rebranding, that they're going to invest in their own micro-fulfillment centers. You know, the fact that industrial has become the highest and best use of the major categories in most cities there, outpacing office, all the result of these huge investments in uh, inconvenience above all, which I, which I think is extremely a very sharp double-edged sword when it comes to cities because, you know, cities are a lot less interesting if the, the storefronts disappear and they all become mini warehouses there in Manhattan and elsewhere. But it speaks to the fact that, like, yeah, the, you know, there the real estate has, has become very subservient to this business model built on apps and convenience and branding. And we're seeing this, you know, this has been a 10 year, 10 year play by Uber and others here to basically push the asset below the surface of the interface, you know, below the API, as they say in tech circles. So it's all these things. It's, you know, it's having sort of tech enabled service models, whether I'm, you know, going to an office building and able to use services, whether it's basically, yeah, the fact that, you know, that retail has become this omni-channel hybrid of just-in-time delivery. I mean, you know, I was talking to uh, Mary uh, Mary Ludgin, who's head of research at Heitman out of Chicago. We were talking about the fact that, like, I, she threw this crazy stat, that, like 74% of targets are now basically running micro-fulfillment warehouses out of them. The, tar the targets are now being repriced, not as retail, but as industrial when it comes to their sort of, you know, rents whatever the cap is. But anyway, so the point is, is that, you know, that we're seeing a complete change in this. And it's it's that whole service enablement and who you partner with for tech providers and what those tech providers want to do to you as real estate asset owners is the part where I think it's really, really interesting. Because and I'll just, I'll stop here, but like, you know, DoorDash is an example of this. DoorDash controls its own real estate. It, you know, signs leases with others. It partners with existing restaurants to use in their kitchen space. It will sign deals to launch its own stuff. Like it's kind of this really heterodox real estate strategy that I just don't think most, you know, most asset owners are used to seeing. And that and that means that has all sorts of implications. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing that you were saying about industrial outpacing office, it just had me also thinking if industrial space is being used in very different ways, like what happens to the ways that 
they needed industrial to work off of. So that just has me thinking about supply chain and like, what what do we do with that? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's what I wonder again about sort of like when it comes to like all the stuff that's being built now, you know, like, I mean, I think Dallas, I saw somewhere that Dallas has like 50 million square feet of industrial in the pipeline, you know, huge amounts out there. And like, obviously, you know, we still need, we still need the Inland Empire. And we still need these huge places with giant warehouses to handle sort of distribution there. But, but yeah, it does scramble the formulas. And this is why I come back to like the dark stores and stuff. Like, Taking a dead retail store in a strip mall or on 14th Street in Manhattan and turning it into micro fulfillment, you've suddenly created or rezoned by and disrupted an entire asset class there. And that, of course, changes the demand formulas. And that, you know, my entire take on like a lot of what tech has done to real estate over the last 10 years, like I like fracking to me is the metaphor I always come back to in many ways for, for cities in the sense of like, just like hydraulic fracking, you know, like you, you put in some sort of toxic chemicals into the ground and you get all this oil out and, um, and you get very useful energy out of it, but it requires a ton of capital investment, much of which is wasted. And the effects are not all that great for cities sometimes, just like it is for drinking water. So yeah, so I, I think a lot about that. And that, that has you know, massive repercussions because you can't just simply assume like, oh, well, industrial demand is way up. Let's, you know, let's build you know, a $2 million distribution center. You might not need that in the very near future. Yeah, for sure. Thinking about the concept of like rezoning or, or using space differently than maybe its original intent without rezoning even like what does that do for like when will regulation catch up right because like i think the creativity has been spurred but at some point i feel like there's going to be regulation that then you know potentially squashes some of that creativity as it tends to at times well not that yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not suggesting regulation is good or bad either way but clearly it would change the game and it's a very thin line. It's like, I think the right regulation is good. So when it comes to dark stores in Manhattan, for example, you have Gail Brewer, the Manhattan borough president, who has written very sternly worded letters to these companies and threatened to yank them because she claims they're violating the zoning. I'm definitely of the camp that like zoning in general is not that great. I mean, you know, it's it's extremely restrictive and a kind of blunt instrument when it comes down to it. But we do need to think about like some sort of at least regulation or incentives on like thinking about the externalities when it comes to traffic congestion and safety for sure. And also, I mean, I, one of my particular passions is, you know, how do we do urban revitalization, not through tax breaks and bringing in big, big employers or turning into warehouses, but, you know, I've written and studied about programs in Australia and elsewhere where like, you know, you basically take empty storefronts and you give them, you know, 30 day permits to local artists and entrepreneurs, people who'd be starting businesses at home, let them work in public, let people be out there and, you know, in Newcastle, Australia, which is sort of like the Cleveland of Australia, like they revitalized the downtown that way. And so I think there's a lot of stuff to be done, particularly we've seen with like, you know, the mall apocalypse and the sort of, you know, retail collapse that was brewing well before the pandemic there. Like we need really interesting and, and aggressive policies to like fill those spaces, not just simply like slap the hands of people who are trying to rezone it for industrial. So, you know, how do we fill that with people in life, not just, you know, filling it with boxes? I do think that's ultimately a, not the best use of Midtown Manhattan, for example. For sure. How do you see this effect? So uh, obviously thinking about the future in urban areas, I think a lot of our folks, like, is there a way, how do you translate that? I guess is what I'm trying to say. How do you translate that to much more rural areas? Do, like, I think that there's so much potential for change there, even though it might be slower, but maybe not. It could just be ready for a more drastic change in these like, you know, either rural suburban areas. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm writing a piece right now with uh, with my friend Lev Kushner. We wrote, we wrote about dark stores for Bloomberg City Lab in, in December. And we're writing a piece right now where we're talking about it. He has this great concept called the Department of Hospitality. So we're interested in the notion that, you know, when the pandemic happened and you know people supposedly fled from cities to the countryside, which happened in a handful of cases, you know, and obviously Boise, Nashville, but a lot of the smaller towns and smaller cities, you know, Topeka, you know, Topeka, Kansas, which, you know, 
has a whole program for attracting migrants. They did not get this, you know, huge inflow of migrants from elsewhere. It was a, ha a handful of superstar cities, lost a lot of people to a handful of superstar cities like Boise. And so Lev and I are thinking about like, you know, cities have not yet really begun to think about like, how do we merge economic development and tourism to create this sort of new hybrid, the Department of Hospitality, to welcome people, to streamline getting your kids into schools, to be much more service oriented towards people. And one of our thoughts there is like, you know, Communities have to think a lot more creatively about identifying local assets, universities, uh, other local employers, and, and tapping those things. And there, there's been some really interesting examples. West Lafayette, Indiana, or home of Purdue, like they've created a program where like migrants, you know, there can apply to basically use the university services, use their gym, use their pool, use some of these great sort of local assets. And so, you know, when it comes to your, your point about rural communities and smaller ones, like I think, you know, basically they need to think very creatively about like, this is who we are. This is what we have to offer people. Make yeah. sure you have high-speed internet, of course. But like, yeah, but basically market yourself as this is what we do. And and there's some great examples. Northwest Arkansas, which, you know, is Bentonville and Fayetteville. But like, you know, they offer $10,000 in a mountain bike to new arrivals there because they're all about the mountain biking capital of the world. But, you know, things like that, but even more, I think, creative and granular and, yeah, basically marketing people. And we're seeing that. Like the state of Ohio has been very aggressive in trying to lure people from the coast. But I, I think, you know, with remote work, uh, finally reaching this inflection point where employers are finally really, really serious and you have to come back to the office or think about employment elsewhere. I think we might see another wave of migration here as people be like, well, you know what? I am going to get a job that's fully remote and maybe it won't be the 19 million people that Upwork predicts in their latest report. But, you know, even if it's a million people that can change some of the smaller communities for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's amazing thinking about space like just merging like what your what the office used to offer you. So I'm I got converted to permanent work from home basically. But thinking about my house as also my office and thinking about what I wish I had like built in had I known. So like thinking about how kind of commercial and residential could merge together in a space. But then like you said, with some of these more communities of the future, how it makes sense to have everything kind of live together in a mixed use scenario. I mean, it just would be helpful. <laughs> No, absolutely. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, not, I'm not a huge residential fan, but like, like my riff is like, obviously, like during the pandemic, like residential became commercial as well, because everything yeah. got sucked inside of it. And that's why it's interesting, like, look at like how Lennar has repositioned some of its next gen homes, like it went from being like intergenerational living to, you know, like pack as many home offices into the single floor plan that you can, or a project that I'm following in New Orleans, which is like, yeah, multifamily, but like, instead of ground floor retail, it's a daycare and like conference facilities and, you know, pitched at coastals who want to have, you know, they want to live in NOLA. They want the NOLA life and they probably visited and loved it. But like, you know, there's not a huge number of employers there, tech companies, but you can still embrace that remote. So it, it's it's going to be really interesting when those kinds of like, yeah, those projects that are just now on the drawing boards and they get built and refined and we start to see these sort of new hybrids of commercial and residential or remote and hybrid and sort of where that all goes. And and yeah, those those are the projects that I'm most interested in following at the moment, seeing, seeing how these ideas are getting put into implementation and how they pencil out. Absolutely. So I noticed also from your credentials that you work for a firm in Singapore. So what are what are you seeing globally that is very different maybe than what we're seeing nationally? Uh, and I should say nationally in the United States and Canada, I assume we're pretty similar, but you know, maybe not. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, well, the biggest difference there, I think, so it's funny. I mean, I was just in London with my son on spring break. And what's amazing that I see this is like, you know, the return to the city has totally happened in London. Like, you know, the, and the train stations are bustling. It was also, I mean, we got there the day all restrictions were lifted. So coming from Canada, which is very conservative with the pandemic to, you know, no masks for a week. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, seeing that many people at all times of day was fascinating to be back in a real rush hour environment. And so, you know, I, I think that's the biggest difference. I think, you know, the European cities 
you know, our, their urban cores have much more recovery than what we've seen in the United States. Um, I think, you know, obviously I paid a lot of attention to what, you know, Milan and Madrid and Paris have done with, you know, pushing towards cycling away from the car. Obviously what Mayor Anadolu's done in Paris ahead of the 24 Olympics there, like in terms of like, you know, speed limit of just 30 kilometers per hour for the entire city, banning traffic in the city center, what Berlin is doing as well. So, I, you know, having this shift away from the, from car centricity towards maximizing people and space and quality of life has been really fascinating. And like, you know, and I think I think more cities, cities in the United States, you know, particularly New York, San Francisco and a handful of others with the density to do it should move immediately in the direction as possible because it's interesting looking at the anecdotal evidence with the people who are coming back to New York. They're doing everything New Yorkers do when it comes to going out, drinking, dining, culture, entertainment. They're not going back to their midtown offices. And you know, those numbers are not budging. And I'm wondering about when, you know, we're starting to see the rumblings there. Like, what if this is permanent? Not only do we have to figure out how to convert those offices perhaps to something else or, or keep it as, as co-working and flex space. But more to the point of like, you have to change that economy. You know, you have to basically give more people to spend quality time with each other, to have that sociability. And so, you know, yeah, allowing people to like wander around the streets, bringing back to go cocktails, which I'm glad to see that Governor Hochul is interested in doing, et cetera, there, you know, uh, those kinds of things. Investing more in quality of life, I think, is the, is, the, is the thing that the Europeans have done during the pandemic. And I think it's one of the things the European cities should do. Thinking about New York City and how much square footage there is in office, if that is something that doesn't have a revival, like, what, as a futurist, what can you see as the opportunity to use all of that? I mean, there's so much. I know. It's, it's one of those things I just saw was that Manhattan has 11% of all office space in the entire United States. I mean, and, 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 you know, the part that I fear is that, you know, that New York has 40% of all transit trips in the United States. I mean, that system is in trouble if we don't bring that back. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, much has been moved on this. I've tried to start some projects and thinking through like, you know, is there an actual path to residential conversion for a lot of these office properties? There is no easy answer to that. It's expensive laws about, you know, having, having, you know, windows and light into some of those cores just isn't going to happen. So I don't know. I don't think there's, I don't think we found an answer to that yet. And no one's really prepared to like do that kind of write down or rethink what that is, but that day may be coming. I, you know, and particularly in Manhattan, I mean, there's, there'll be a large percent, you know, even if it's an X percent, that could be tens of millions of square feet. Sure. Never coming back. So it will be interesting. And, th- th- and there were some interesting examples, I mean, you know, before Adam Newman of WeWork and we crashed fame now, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying watching that, you know, before, you know, Adam Newman, you know, he, he funded a whole project called We Live to imagine co-living inside some of these converted office properties in New York. And now he's moved into luxury multifamily is when he's building out his property portfolio. Perhaps, you know, there's some lessons in those projects like We Live and, and other some of the co-living experiments done in those office properties. Crystal City, Virginia was another We Live. Perhaps those could be some interesting tools to think about like, you know, how do you reinvent the residential experience with micro units and maybe less windows, but much stronger public amenities and, you know, some sort of hybrid between hospitality and, and, and living together, maybe, and, you know, or, and then obviously, again, going back to like bringing back home offices into the equation, perhaps, you know, half of the building is co-living and the other half is, is flexible workspaces in there. And like, I mean, if you're a young techie, maybe you do want to live at the office, only now the office is your house. I mean, these are, these are the kinds of like weird mixed up yeah. pieces that we'll see. That's interesting. You said something before about Paris and city traffic, and it just sparked something in my memory of, I think it was post-French Revolution where they like redid all of the Paris downtown. So is this a form of like population control or like making sure people stay in line? Like I went to a dystopian place when you said that, but it it was very interesting to think about. Well, yeah, well, no, Houseman did that. No, that was basically, that was a stop revolutions because uh, it was was during, you know, during uh, Napoleonic in 1832 and 1848. 
where like people would build barricades in the narrow streets and then fight with soldiers. And so you basically plow that out so you can't build barricades the length of the Champs Elysees. But no, the, 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 I mean, the real use there, and I actually worked on, on the project. My friend Philippe Chiambretta is the French architect who is redesigning the Champs Elysees. And, and we talked about basically closing it to cars, which he did not want to do. And then Mayor Hidalgo went ahead and did it anyway. But, but yeah, massively extending the boulevards in, planting new trees, adding more green space, and turning it into much more of a living room. And what's really interesting about the Champs Elysees project, because it got started before the pandemic, is that the prompting was Parisians hate the Champs Elysees. Like they see it as the ultimate tourist trap, like beyond Times Square. Like if you, they did, Philippe's team did surveys, and only five out of every hundred people on the Champs Elysees actually lived in Paris. And so one of the things we saw during the pandemic was like, yeah, these centers of cities aimed at global tourism basically just emptied out and were totally dormant. How do we reclaim Times Square and the Champs Elysees and Trafalgar Square and these other iconic centrally located places for actual residents, that, you know, and make it useful to them? not just, you know, tourism, which has come back to varying degrees there. So, so that was, yeah, it was less population control, but more the notion of like, you know, yeah, how do, how do we stop revolutions? And now it's like, how do we, you know, how do we turn them into gardens more or less? Yeah. The green space, I mean, obviously the green movement is huge in thinking about space and even farming and my mind kind of with some empty office space, like I go into urban farming and that's at least where I like to fantasize about is like bringing, bringing lettuce farms all over Manhattan, <laughs> which is like yeah. ridiculous, but maybe not. Well, also just, yeah, bring back the bike lanes. I mean, you know, I mean, you know yeah. cycling and active transportation, I mean, even, even versus EVs, it's just so much more energy efficient. And obviously, you know, if, if we do see ESG take off in a big way, obviously in New York with, uh, was it Local Law 97 there with the world's first binding carbon tax on buildings? Like, it'll be very interesting to see as those tools roll out, like, you know, how do, how do we think about the carbon footprint of your, of your asset? And also, you know, the way people get to and from it. I mean, you know, it's been what, I don't know, 20 years at least since the USGBC like rolled out lead, uh, you know, for buildings there and, and created that formula that included mobility options. You know, they created lead neighborhood for thinking larger projects, but really at this point we need like lead city. And that has to be completely holistic when thinking about what your actual sort of, you know, environmental strategy is. And, you know, thinking through about how people get to the building is just as important as the building itself, particularly if you need to motivate them to come versus stay at home. Yeah, that's true. Good point. You know, sometimes when we think about, well, when certain people think about the future and progress, they tend to think about a, more of like an equitable life. I guess that's like wish casting, right? Like things would be more equal or equitable. But sometimes when it comes to technology and development, I think certain groups get still get left behind and sometimes the gap ends up being bigger. So I'm just curious for you like to pick your brain about the concept of the future and where we stand with equity and inclusion and that sort of thing. I'm just curious on what you think about that. Oh, man, these questions are getting broader and broader <laughs> I'm now. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right to be skeptical of it. I mean, it's funny. I thought you were setting me up here to talk about crypto, which I'll touch upon here. Um, because, yes, you know, I will. And that is next. Okay, well, there favorite. you go. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that because, you know, Web3 web is the hotspot here and, you know, virtual yeah. real estate and all that sort of discussion. But like, I mean, that's that's deeply inequitable. And it's, you know, and it's and it's dressed up in this notion of decentralization. And, really? I, I've, got, and I've got projects working. I think I think, you know, I, there is a really interesting germ of an idea in, in Web3, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, the DAO, which is a great idea in principle and has struggled in real life. But it's the first interesting structure, you know, this idea of having a, a loose network of people who can vote on decisions, but software can sort of operate, creating an operating system for organizations is a really interesting alternative to the hierarchical corporation as we know it, which is, you know, our best technology for organizing people. 
So there's some really interesting stuff there. But what Web3, you know, is either premised on this idea, and I won't go too deep into it, but the notion of like how you distribute the tokens or the Bitcoins or that sort of that nominal stake that's the heart of it is either so-called proof of work, which is Bitcoin out there using electricity of an increasingly large country to do math problems to give you Bitcoins, which is, yeah, we won't even go there. Or there's this sort of culture of like proof of stake where you show that like, you know, you have a very large hard drive that, you know, the, the DAO gets to use or something else, which is also inequitable because you have to have resources already to get more resources. Like yeah. it becomes a rich gets richer in that particular form. Totally. So until until those sort of problems are solved, it, it's really hard to imagine that, you know, that, that, you know, that Web3 will actually fulfill its promise of more democratic and, and more, you know, more decentralized than, you know, the Facebook and Google it aims to replace. So, you know, we'll see there. And then we get into the metaverse, which is like a whole other thing as well. But I mean, the, meta, the metaverse offends many. And it's really interesting, the metaverse concept you now, which is which, by the way, got started in a handful of dystopian, overtly dystopian novels where the world was terrible. And so people retreated into the metaverse. And Mark Zuckerberg read those or didn't. But my, <laughs> but my point there is like, is like you know, the, the, the metaverse there has its own problems as well, because, you know, it's this idea of, of virtual real estate, of virtual scarcity. You know, the, the the true utopians about the Internet, the idea of digital goods that can be endlessly copied but used by any number of people. Paul Romer won the Nobel Prize for Economics on this notion of non-rivalrous goods. You, everybody could use digital tools and it's not just one on one. Web3 would love to create rivalrous goods, you know, having your NFT, having your tokens. And yeah, there's many of us who are just viscerally offended by this because it cuts against the grain of the entire Internet utopian project. So, you know, I hope we don't go down that path. And there's a lot of money to be made there, for sure. The idea that we'll mint these digital goods that people will pay, your, your bored apes and your crypto punks and any of your favorite NFTs. But yeah, it definitely does not represent the more equitable future you're discussing. It's very much a, a sort of a new asset class, a new way to create wealth. But for whom exactly? Yeah, that's been interesting, interesting to me lately because so many people like to talk about crypto and the metaverse and all this like ethereal concepts for most, right? Like in this... Well, it can be for anybody. And you're like, well, not really. <laughs> not for anybody. I mean, my one sentence, you know, advice for any for, for listeners here about Web3 and the metaverse is like it's it's the same as any investing anything else. If you don't understand it, you probably shouldn't invest in it. I don't believe that I personally could ever understand what's actually operating in many of these, you know, tokens and, and NFTs better than the people originating it. And that, you know, the stories of so many scams and so many other sort of shady operations there. I think it's gonna be a long time. It'll be interesting to see how that regulation develops. There is a space in desperate need of regulation and the SEC and the Biden administration are trying to figure this out. Others, you know, China, of course, has banned it. But but yeah, I mean, you know, this I, I do think it's funny we reached the point, by the way, where this supposedly, you know, ungovernable, permanently immutable blockchain where people have their apes stolen and then basically go filing federal lawsuits about it. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to basically demand that a court gives you back your ape, then, you you know, you have to acknowledge that there'll be some regulation at some point, I think. Yeah. And interestingly, so on the other side, right, El Salvador, I think, as a country is doubling down and investing into crypto as a currency that the country, I think, is going to sanction and use. So that's like super interesting. Gosh, I could I could go on with you probably for a while <laughs> about crypto, because then there was like the whole truckers in Canada. And I think they got shut off from being able to access their cryptocurrency or their Bitcoin. I can't remember what it was. And that had its own like bag of like, you know, what does that mean? And what's the future? And can if a government can shut it down because it's regulated or centralized? Like, you know, what does that do? So interesting. So, so interesting. Okay. I'm going to bring us back to commercial real estate. 
I'm curious to know kind of two different scenarios in your mind. What's like a dystopian view of like where we can like some things that are like highlighting like, oh, gosh, I hope you don't go there, but it looks like we could. And then kind of what's a wish casting like this is really exciting and possible. And I hope that we go in this direction. So like what are some oh, yeah. one of each? <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Well, I'll just on the dystopian front. I mean, there's I mean, there's a couple of dystopian fronts. I mean, there's there's many of them. So one, I mean, let's, let's take. I mean, something something that I've not thought about as a kid, but like nodding to course to the war in Ukraine is like, you know, there is a non-zero chance of nuclear war, like which should be acknowledged in the sense of this is a project. I was part of some workshops at Sandia National Labs, the Department of Energy. And like, you know, there, there are papers written on this that basically any nuclear war is disastrous for climate in the sense that we would have global cooling, which would lead problems to to crops. So so the climate is, is, is the it's something I bring this up because climate is always at the forefront of my mind at this point. Because it, you know, Spencer Glendon, who is at Wellington Management, now is at the Woodwell Climate Research Institute, he, he recently wrote a piece acknowledging that basically that a stable, predictable climate is the foundation of all wealth and everything. That, you know, the ability to rely on that, if once that starts to crack and crumble, the whole thing becomes a sort of, you know, tottering tower on top of it that, that crumbles in, in unequal and in unpredictable ways. So that, that's something out there. So, you know, a dystopian scenario, you know, you've got global nuclear war induced nuclear winter on one hand, but also just, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a scenario in 2017 for New York. Imagine the coast of New York and New Jersey in 2067. And so I wrote up my, my architect friends designed these beautiful landscapes set 50 years in the future then. And they asked me, well, Greg, how do we get here? And so, you know, doing research and talking to people, doing what I do is foresight, in this case, backcasting in a way. I looked at the fact that like, you know, starting in 2016, for example, you know, Sean Bichetti, who at the time was the chief economist for Freddie Mac, wrote a blog post there uh, talking about the fact that like, you know, we were increasingly seeing price signals coming out of Florida about how sea level rise and, and hurricane risk is starting to affect coastal communities. And he made the point like, well, you know, will the market price that in in a rational, orderly way? Or will a handful of smart people sell early and then panic selling ensues? And we start to see a, a Minsky moment, just like we did during the financial crisis, but a Minsky moment where suddenly there's huge write downs of, of, of climate risk on this kind of property. And so the scenario I wrote, here's my dystopian future. This was written in 2017. In 2022, in the early in the fall season, Hurricane Hermine, Category 5, that's an official name this year, Hurricane Hermine destroys lower Manhattan. Effectively, you know, you know, the insurance costs are into the over a trillion dollars. It bankrupts the states of New York and New Jersey. And so then governors Andrew Cuomo and John Bon Jovi have to make a compact to sell off the Port Authority airports and sell off other assets there. President Trump, uh, you know, oversees the great crash of 2022, which is when, you know, that Minsky moment happens. And then uh, I think I ended it with him dying in office in a second term. And then President Mark Zuckerberg takes over in 2024 and institutes universal basic income called Zuckerbucks, where you get, you know, his face is on them. And then eventually you get universal basic housing, 3D printed housing and other things prototype, which become known as Zucker huts, you know, sort of the sort of Great Depression in the 2030s triggered due to climate finance. So that's there's there's one version of it. And, you know, and, and parts of that have come, you know, in and out of focus over time, but, you know, still probably possible. And then a more utopian way. I don't know. I, I, I haven't written anything as conducive to that one, but I did have I did do a conference on climate migration called Higher Ground. And we invited Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author, to present. He wrote a book called Ministry for the Future which is a bit of wish casting, but he does have some great ideas there about governments issuing their own currencies. He calls them carbon coins, where like basically governments paying polluters and paying energy companies to keep fossil fuels in the ground and basically giving them the money to finance to renewable energy. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there happening. The fact that the costs of renewables have dropped faster than every prediction basically ever made on that. Every forecaster on that has been wrong. I think that's a really powerful utopian step there. 
and yeah, you know, I, there are there are some places I like to think that the realization will set in here about the you know the needs to invest in care and the needs to invest in other people, and you know, hopefully this pandemic will will trigger a longer reflection there, like on what matters when it comes to life and health and life changes in this, because I do think you know we also run the risk. Uh, I'll leave it here. This is neither utopian or dystopian, but like. You know, the pandemic isn't done with us yet. And we have yet to see what the long term changes of like how many people are disabled due to long COVID and these kinds of other changes in family life, you know, and more intergenerational living. A lot of stuff has yet to be shaken out and a lot of a lot of signals are out there pointing to various features we can take. Oh, interesting. OK, I wanted to just touch on how. So this has left me with like I am just spinning over so many ideas in a very good way. But, you know, for our listeners, how can we prepare ourselves for the future? You know, as we're as we're either thinking dystopian or utopian or nothing, in, you know, everything in between. What are the best ways we can really kind of try and get ready for a new future? Well, all right. Well, again, coming back to it, the notion is like there is no the future. That's the first thing we have to let go of. There is yeah. no single future. There are always futures. There's always contingencies. There's always becomings of this. And. You know, again, like, you know, the second trend is that is like, do not rely on past formulas and strategies. And 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 I say this explicitly coming back to this, like, you know, the the huge population move to the Sun Belt, like Florida real estate, Texas real estate, all these things. They're not necessarily forever. Acknowledging the fact that situations can change very rapidly. There can be transition points that where where, where change is much more possible than they have been in the recent past. And so acknowledging those two things. And then it just becomes a question because we cannot predict the precise moment when those things might happen. A pandemic, for example. Movies have been made since Michael Crichton in the 60s, the Andromeda strain, about that kind of pandemic. But we never knew when it would happen. We knew it would happen. It was not a black swan. It was just a matter of when and how it would play out. And so, yeah, having that kind of planning capacity and, 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 and building that, right, doing those contingencies, having those scenarios there. I would encourage any organization to, like, think through your priors and investigate, like, like what do we assume is given? This is not necessarily as given and having, you know, having even loose provisional plans lying around to be like, OK, we imagine this. Here's where we start these conversations from. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? And like, where do we go from here? And, you know, that's again, the pandemic was it was an incredible uh, lesson to us all. And like how much resilience did we actually have already in place and how quickly could we pivot? I mean, you know, I do. I'm spending a lot of time, for example, on you know doing some stuff with Fast Company and the contributing writer there on digital transformation. You know, all these companies that had to shut down the office also had to move their entire business models digitally. And they they managed to succeed in changing business models in weeks and months that they thought were actually going to take a decade on their roadmaps. So that's the kind of thing where like, you know, have we discovered new organizational tempos? Can you move faster than you assume now that we're sort of going back to what we think of as normal life? Maybe the thing we want to keep there is the belief that like, no, we can move a lot faster and we can, we can, we can give up a lot of cherished ideas a lot more easily than we always thought we ever thought we could. That's a great thought. I think that is something that my team and, you know, the team that I work on really embraced and will keep hopefully forever, really. Like, I mean, it's the the word pivot just gives me a little bit of like (laughs) shivers because we said it so many times. Right. But but the fact that you can be flexible and things change and it's okay and you can move on and we can figure it out. And like it's just it felt very communal in the greater good in like in the positive sense. And we'll do what's best and we'll we'll keep figuring it out. And it, I think it gave everybody a little bit more confidence that you can make changes that fast because I think working in a big organization sometimes feels limiting. And I think that's something that COVID and, and maybe all of the changes kind of inspired is that you don't have to feel bogged down by what has been maybe looking at the past and prior models and all that, like you can flex and you can be pivot and it can work out very well, you know? And I think that that was a really positive, like my big takeaway is just thinking about 
looking to the past and thinking about what did you get right and what did you get wrong and not having the past kind of dictate how you think about the future. I think that is probably a really great takeaway for me personally, is just not letting the data and the past bog you down and really thinking about what the future can bring. I think that's a great takeaway. So thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. This is fun. For anyone that would like to engage with more content that Greg has penned, please navigate to www.greglindsay.org. That's G-R-E-G-L-I-N-D-S-A-Y.org. That is also where you can find links to connect with him on Twitter or through his email address. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Till next time.